Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Oh, Andy, I'm, uh, I, ha I, this is the first time, no, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to restrain myself. So the trailer for Lady Vengeance. Yes. Really focuses on the psychological thriller nature of the film. 
wouldn't you say? It's very much about... <laughs> Let's uh, just note the, how restrained I was just then. Really restrained. You were very yeah. restrained. Okay, I just wanted to be honored for my restraint. You may speak. Well, it really focuses on on uh, Park Chan-wook's visuals. Um, it focuses on kind of uh, the revenge, the woman who is, you know... It, it, it No way does it go into the fact that she was kind of... She took the rap for this murder. Right. You know, it, it, it just is, uh, you know, he kidnaps her kid and 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 ruins her life and she goes after him and that was kind of the setup of it with some amazing visuals um and there are a lot of it's very energetic cutting right because when you have these great overhead shots of them moving the the drawings around the paper around on the table very quick you can't see what it is like there's there's some really cool stuff going on and and it's a beautiful film it's i mean it's park chan Wook. yeah of course it is yeah and there's and then at the end there's some crying and some you see some slamming of furniture and uh, you know, people fall down, but you don't get the you don't get a whole lot of the mystery. So I think in in that regard, and particularly on the heels of the last two films that are now part of the spiritual you know trilogy, the Vengeance trilogy, I I imagine this trailer did exactly what it needed to do. I, I think so. I mean, it's selling it's selling a revenge story from Park Chan Wook, who has shown, hey, here's a guy who really loves making <laughs> revenge stories. <laughs> And it does it in a really visually creative way. And so I, I think to that end, um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what the Korean audiences were expecting, but I mean, Old Boy was a huge success over there. So I would think that when Park Chan-wook's next film came out and it had um, people they recognized from his films, it had the style of him, it had the the themes of his other films, I can see why people would just, you know, jump right on board with it. I think I can totally see that. I can totally see that. I wonder what they thought later. <laughs> I'm sure they thought it fit right mm. in. I'm curious to talk about this one with you because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I just have a sense that uh, just from, from what I've uh, read in your little mm. uh, comments and stuff that... Uh, Perhaps it didn't hit as well with you as the others did. Hmm. I wa- yeah, so I wonder. I, guess we'll I wonder out. how this is going to go. Real curious. Let let let's see. <laughs> this is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey hey hey! And we spoil movies tonight on the show. We're wrapping up Park Chan Wook's Vengeance trilogy with his 2005 film Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy tuning in and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation to our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. In honor of the film we're talking about tonight, this week's list will be movies dealing with wrongful imprisonment. So just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. So, uh, Andy, Lady Vengeance. Uh, this is the third in Park Chan-wook's uh, Vengeance trilogy. And um, there is a certain air of familiarity to the narrative. Would you agree? Somebody's been wronged and they want vengeance. Yes. And this time... Could we could we go that far, that broad? Yes, yes. This uh, this uh, film, we have the beautiful uh, uh, Lee Gumja, who is wrongfully imprisoned, and we spend the uh, uh, the balance of the film 
both trying to understand her experience through flashback and uh, watching her seek uh, plan and seek vengeance on uh, those who have wronged her uh, along the way. And the surprise in this film, the surprise that is set up very early in the film, right in the in the opening uh, voiceover, we actually learn that the big surprise is that she is so beautiful. She's so beautiful with the angel face. She has the the angelic uh, face. And so why, how could she possibly have lured and murdered this five year old boy? Uh, and that sends the community into great shock. And therefore, she is sent to jail. Um, that that sort of sums up, I think, the the principal argument that is set up at the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah. And, and can I just say, uh, the Korean prison system seems to have uh, uh, something wrong with it when a child murderer uh, goes free after thirteen years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that was that was surprising. And not only that, she's in the same cell with eight other women. One of them is, let's say, an adulterer. Uh, another like they're they're one of those uh, a North Korean spy. Right. <laughs> their crimes their crimes seem to be. Uh, let's just say they they probably just rolled some dice to put these these right. women in their cells. It was not a, a great community that that was built. And yet, what we see from flashback as she now that she's out is, uh, you know, she was able to build quite a little network in inside the prison and that these women were more than happy to to help her uh, now that she's on the outside to seek vengeance in in her special way now i would say there is a lot going on in this film that is just straight up beautiful right i i think that uh it is a it's gorgeous to watch uh from the opening credits on i mean i was blown away by how wonderful the opening credits were this this sort of close-up montage of of uh Kind of, a, I guess, would you describe it as a tattoo kind of a thing? Uh, we're following the ink uh, on a hand, and, and then on a face, and then we have close up of knives. It it sort of reminds me of Dexter, the the opening credits of That's Dexter exactly later, right? Exactly what. Yeah, I was right. So, uh, it's just, but it's just beautiful because it's so stark and white and gorgeous. And then we get, uh, you know, these drips of blood and the the liquid blood that's flowing around in contrast to the to the white. And I think this film actually makes good on this visual promise from the opening credits of uh, really playing with color. And I think color as a symbol in the film is is quite dramatic and, and lovely. It absolutely is. And you're right. The, the opening credits, uh, they're beautifully done. And I think that it fits very nicely with kind of the, the color theme throughout this film. And I mean, each of the films has kind of had a, a nice color scheme with it. And this one very much is kind of that white and red. And we get that here. And I guess you could almost say um, black and white and red. Uh, and certainly we'll talk more about kind of the, the black and white nature of this mm-hmm. film um, later in our conversation. But I, I I felt like it was a really um, uh, nice combination to go with and the way that that plays out um, a lot with the with the red eyeshadow that uh, that she was wearing all the time um, that gave her face such a uh, stark look that worked really well as this woman who is on a mission, because there's a big difference between that look and any other time in the film when we see her, when she doesn't have it, like in the flashbacks or at the end after she's removed it. And I felt like it was, uh, there's just something really gorgeous about the pairing of those colors. And like when she's out in the snow, anything, it was just, it worked really nicely 
throughout the film. I couldn't help but think of Harley Quinn, you know, as a just an origin story of, a, you know, kind of a, an anti-heroine that, you know, she is she's doing some really bad things and she has done some really bad things. And we absolutely get this sense that this is her origin story uh, and that her grief is fueling her. Uh, in in a way to to right this wrong in the world and the way they play with that makeup and and when she has it and when she doesn't and in fact the the reverence with which they approach the scene in which she's taking it off right when she's taking off the mask that she's been wearing throughout this this final ordeal uh, I, I think really sell you know sells this as a as you know for lack of a better word what would be uh, what could very easily be uh, yet another superhero story uh just told in a much sort of much more sort of visually dynamic way yeah uh, that's actually an interesting way to go about it i can't help but feeling like we've talked about that in some recent show where you know somebody had the oh it was um uh knew me in um the uh the third of the right right she puts on her punk stuff when she has right and she's got that crazy look because that's kind of her her mask that she's wearing and very much so the same in this case. Yeah. Park Chan-wook says of this film, basically I'm throwing out the question, when is such violence justified to get that question to touch the audience physically and directly? That's what my goal is in the experience of watching my film. I don't want the viewer to stop at the mental or the intellectual. I want them to feel my work physically. Uh, What's your, what's your sense of that? I, I I really love that. And I think as a director making that choice, I think he's effective at it because all three of these films have had uh, just elements that are really difficult to watch. He makes films that are are challenging of his audiences and and forces you into situations where you really have to put yourself through these these moments and and you know find your way through it and it's tough and it's challenging and i think as a filmmaker i think there's uh, that level of of art where he is being much more artistic than you're going to get in kind of your your you know standard fare um, Hollywood blockbuster type of film, or even your standard fair Hollywood revenge film, for that matter. It's not something that is um, just kind of a satisfying, ah, there we go, that's what I needed, you know, that catharsis. This is something that really pushes you. And I really enjoy uh, watching what Park does with uh, with the films. And I, I, I agree, he makes tough films to watch. These are not films that you'd want to put on that regularly, but I... In, in every case, I have found myself really enjoying the experience. Okay. I really enjoyed the experience uh, uh, up to a point. I enjoyed the experience until, I, and I didn't even know this was a, a line for me, but it, until we get to the uh, uh, five-year-old snuff films, and I mean five-year-olds in snuff films that are displayed for the parents, uh, that is when I... I found myself, I wanted to punch him in the neck so hard. Like that was a line that took this film from a healthy, meaty, maybe four star, four and a half to I'm never watching this film again. I don't, I can't, that, that was something that I found so offensive uh, and that, that he, he handled it the way he did, that it completely changed the way I look at the entire film. So, you know, yeah, I want you to feel physically at watching my, well, mission accomplished. 
mission accomplished. And that was a terrible experience that taught me nothing. Uh, so I'm, I was deeply unsettled by it to the point that I, I resent the experience of watching the movie. Yeah, well, interesting. And I don't remember the last time I felt that way uh, it, because I am not offended by the fact that the part of the narrative is that these kids were kidnapped and killed. I'm not I'm not offended by that. That is a horrific thing. But the way they staged the presentation and the way they played the videos was too far. And that is the only piece of this film that I think is too far. And I had no problem watching Old Boy and getting through those scenes that were incredibly violent and horrific and cutting out his own tongue. But doing what he did to those children, Andy, on screen, I I was I was it was crushing. It's it is very affecting. Uh, absolutely. I 100 percent agree. And I kept asking myself while it was happening, uh, you know, how why is this happening like why are they showing this because it's it's so uh one the detective is with her so uh, like i couldn't figure out what what are they doing like why why are they torturing these parents this way and like it, it was one of those situations where it it affected me in in such strong ways because it it was so illogical you know and i couldn't i couldn't piece together why um, why this is the way that they were going about in the storytelling here. And it ended up reminding me of um, a, uh, this is going back to film school. This is kind of a, a strange jump, but bear with me here for a second. Um, back in film school, um, we had to do something on camera in a way to kind of express ourselves or, or to show us doing something that was active that would get, you know, stimulated conversation type mm-hmm. of thing, something mm-hmm. like that, you know? And, you know, we all did these different things. And, and this one guy in our class, um, he, I, I don't know what he did. Like he raised snakes or something. That was like some job that he did. And he, so for his film, it was, it was this kind of this, this snuff film, I guess you could say, where he walks into his room um, and, and there's a tank there in front of him with, a, I don't know, some boa constrictor or something in it. And he has a thing with a rat in it. And the rat's scurrying around and stuff. He grabs the rat by the tail and picks it up, and he swings it really hard and hits, hitting the rat uh, rat's head against the counter several times, and then dropping it into the snake cage um, while the rat is is twitching. And uh, and then the rat and then the snake eats the rat. And I guess that's how you have to feed these things these rats because otherwise. The rats are so vicious that they will attack the snake and scrape, you know, scratch it up and, and wound the snake. And if you're raising snakes to sell, you can't mm-hmm. do that. So it was like this horrifying thing to watch. And but in context, it made sense. And I just can't help but place what my my film instructor said. He said this was really interesting. What would have made it more daring is to film yourself doing that with the rat but not giving the reveal of what it was for and just and 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 cutting it off and seeing you just beating the rat and that would be the end of your film we don't realize the context even though there is a context of what you're doing and i i felt like that was what uh 
Park was kind of doing. He cut off the intro to the whole scene, setting up why the parents were here. The parents had agreed to kind of go through this as some form of catharsis to really understand you know, who this monster was and what their kids did and, and all those last things that their kids went through and everything, because it's, it's torture. But I feel like as a parent, I would want to know like all of that sort of stuff. And it's, it's painful and it's awful and it's dark. And it's, uh, it's, it's like the worst thing in the world you could imagine. Um, and it just goes right into this lady who I just couldn't help but go, this lady is freaking whack. If, if this is what she's doing to these parents and I couldn't under, I couldn't place it. And it took me a while to kind of really put that together in my head, but it's very hard and it's very challenging. But in the end, as I kind of started thinking about it that way, I came to a place where I was accepting of it because I felt like it was just another way to challenge me. Although I can totally get your point of view on it. Yeah, too. I, I think it crossed the line. I think it crossed the line. The dad, uh, sir, please don't kill me, sir. Please don't kill me. I can't breathe, sir. And then kicking the chair out from under. I mean, those those scenes make the world a worse place. I think everything else in the film, watching the parents suffer through this. I mean, you didn't have to show it. You didn't have to show it. In this case, Park Chan-wook is your friend and we, the audience, are the rat. <laughs> That's what I felt like. <laughs> In your example, it, it's just a horrible. And as a note, your film instructor just gave the worst, like the worst advice for a saleable movie that you could possibly give to your peer. Like that is a movie that is terrible. That's terrible. But you have to understand this. We, these were this is is, um, you know, looking at film as art. It's not looking at film as a business to go make money. That's what we were exploring in the process is, is not so much the artistic or the, 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 the box office side, but it's looking at it as art and what you can do with it. And that's exactly, I think in that sense, I think the film instructor gave really interesting advice. Yeah, there. Interesting. I, I will agree on that point. I, I put this film, like I, I compare it to something like American History X, which is another film I'm never going to watch again, but it's an important film. Uh, and it, it has, a, it's an important film for a number of reasons. And it's very difficult to watch. Uh, this film is very difficult to watch. And it is uh, ultimately as a result of the, uh, for me, the way it is, but it's an unimportant film. Uh, and I, I feel like uh, there are some, there are some ways that it's important. Some of the visual style and some of the way he uses color and transitions. And in fact, you take that scene out and you restage that scene. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot to be said for this film it, that, that is just ultimately torpedoed uh, by, you know, just going too far. So, and I was bemused by the fact that he apologized for old boy and said, I'm sorry, you know, it's so hard to watch. And, you know, did he say the same thing about this film? Because this is the film you should apologize for. Uh, and I, I've spent the day in my head swearing so that I wouldn't have to swear so hard on this show because I, I was really angry uh, at this experience. So mission accomplished. Uh, you have made me feel physically about your film. Uh, and that's great. Anyhow, we got We got to move on from this because it's just going to work me up. Uh, I think it already oh, has. God, <laughs> literal title of this film is uh, uh, kind hearted Gumja. I well, in context of the the of the kind of this unofficial trilogy, obviously Lady Vengeance has uh, a stronger place. Yeah. Um, likewise, sympathy for Lady Vengeance, which is actually what my screen said when the title mm -hmm. came up, um, that also uh, fits nicely with the uh, series. And then in that case, Old Boy is the only one that just doesn't yeah, right, doesn't right. seem to look right at all. 
Um, you know, I don't know. Kindhearted Gumja uh, doesn't do much for me as a title. Uh, I, I kind of prefer okay. this one. What do you think of the story? If we ta- if we get rid of all the other, you know, violent nonsense, what do you think of just the way the narrative is built? Because I had some issues with it. Going back to what, what we were talking about, I mean, aside from making a challenging film, he also has a very challenging storytelling style. We've certainly seen this in both of the previous films. I like the way that he really pushes me to pay attention. Um, that being said, I still um, was lost a few times. And if it wasn't for um, listening to some commentary and reading about it and stuff, I would have completely missed that she uh, that this teacher, uh, you know, teacher Bake and her, um, this was the guy that she kind of hooked up with when she was pregnant, when she was younger. And I didn't catch that. And I didn't realize that it was the same person. And that she um, that he had known her. And that's that's how he kind of um, came to uh, use her as this pawn to um, to uh, get her to uh, kind of uh, become the the person who had to fall for uh, the crime that he had committed. Um, I totally miss that. And that's kind, uh, of, I that's kind of an important some piece. Random lady. Yeah. It is. It is absolutely. Um, and uh, it's just it, so sometimes like that, things like that. Those are things that I feel like if I had watched it a second or third time, yeah. I might have started going, oh, OK, he was the same guy who she called when she was in the aquarium. Um, and uh, and, you know, that that was the kind of that whole thing. It's just one of those things like it's a trickier storytelling style. And I, I think that there's a there's um, a, a side to telling your stories this way that really making your audience work hard for it is a really interesting way to go about it. And I definitely like that he's doing that. But on the flip side of that, it can make it more challenging for people uh, when they are trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And that when they come to it and go, I don't know where I am or why I'm bouncing around so much, it can be, uh, it can end up pushing people away, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think in this film, more than the other two, which which also had the same style. I mean, I get it. Like, that's his style. But in the other two films, I can put my finger on the visual uh, tricks and the visual sort of tools that he uses to keep me uh, moving with the story. And I, I think they flew a little bit high and wide on, on this one, a little bit more. I, I don't know. I don't want to call it sloppy, but maybe it was just, you know, that they they felt, you know, that I, I don't know. Did they feel like they were giving the audience uh, even more control, even more power in the relationship between the the creator and the and the viewer uh, that the that we'd keep up? And and in many cases in this film, I had to stop, rewind, watch this again. Like, who was that on screen? Uh, you know, did, did they have glasses last time? Those kinds of things. Like, I, I just didn't get it. And I, f- I feel like in some cases, the flashbacks weren't treated well. Uh, and I mean, colored well like uh, color timed well so that we could actually see that we're in the we're in a different part of history um in in some cases i i didn't i didn't always track with that and it it didn't work as well for me as it has in the other two films and this was before i got mad at the movie initially i think when we first have uh one of our flashbacks it does a really interesting style where it looked almost like old film where it kind of had a scratchiness to it and everything but he never came back to that style, and right. I wasn't exactly sure why that choice uh, was made that way. Other than that, I, you know, I guess I didn't have an issue, and I, I really started 
getting a sense of, oh, every time we kind of had that text on screen, this is another of her cellmates that we're following. We're going to get a little bit of her story, a little bit of her uh, situation as to how uh, uh, how uh, Gumja and she kind of connected in prison and then see how that's playing out in real life. I mean, I kind of started, yeah, I got you pretty the, the quickly pattern. attuned. Yeah, I got attuned to that pattern. The only time that it really threw me and I did have to rewind was when it went to, uh, when suddenly, uh, and this is kind of, again, what he did in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, um, midway through the film, we're suddenly thrust into the life of the kidnapper. Mm-hmm. And we see the kidnapper in, in this, like, you know, horrible way that he treats his wife, who, as it turns out, was another of the, uh, of her cellmates. Um, and that transition of, of that cellmate, that particular cellmate and her story and how she met him all happens at the same time that the church guy is apparently also, um, you know, secretly spying on her and taking photos of all these people she's meeting up with. And that whole thing all happened at the same time, like the reveal of the wife, the reveal of their talking and the reveal of the photography. And I really, <laughs> I really got confused. I'm like, wait a minute, who are they talking about? And who got married to who? I, t- I totally that agree. I, that was yeah. that was a sore spot for me too. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, but again, like I, I just feel like, yeah, it, he quite possibly is actually giving us a lot of authority in interpreting the movie and interpreting the way the story comes oh, through. Yeah. And I, I, I so appreciate that. I really do. I love it. I could have used a handrail just a little bit. Just give me a little something to hold on to because there, there were places where it just dropped off. Well, and I got that way even at the end of the film because. When I first watched it, I was like, I was convinced that the daughter and her Australian um, adoptive parents had like died in, in like a, a gas leak yeah. because of all the smoke. <laughs> I'm like, is it because? It, it, but the, it seemed like the girl woke up. And I was like, oh, maybe she's going to die. And then all of a sudden, she's running around in her nighty outside, and I'm like, oh, this is her ghost. And I thought yeah. we we're going into this kind of ghost world, like we have in previous films, right? And I was convinced that that happened until I kind of rewatched it several times and I, I realized, oh, okay, that's the spirit of the boy who was killed because the last time we see him, which is right before that scene, he is, you know, this little boy who's smoking and then he's the older boy and smoking. Um, and then that's his spirit now again visiting because we see him visit um, the daughter, Jenny earlier in the film and now this is him visiting her one last time before he goes off and mm-hmm. uh, you know but it boy did it take me a long time to come to that <laughs> yeah yeah again absence of handrail but again i do find that exciting because it, it it's one of those things that that gives you a sense as you kind of rewatch films you start like you i don't know i get excited as i start being able to put stuff together you know yeah, um yeah. but i agree i also do like those handrails sometimes you see know, i just i it's, I, there's a there's a yeah you can I like it both ways it just it depends on what mood I'm in I guess well yeah and because by the end I was already so disor- disgruntled by the film that it, it wouldn't have mattered if there if there'd been a handrail I would have tried to beat the film with it I I, I feel like that this the the rewards of putting all those pieces together in this film take all the other garbage out if you the rewards of putting the pieces together were not very satisfying for me like figuring out all of the the you know different threads that you know, were troublesome. Uh, I didn't find the narrative as satisfying. And at times I got this feeling like, man, they had a fantastic premise and then wrote themselves in absolute circles 
trying to rationalize it and trying to justify the the overall story. At the end, I was just not as satisfied with the revenge story, with why, you know, her connection to the teacher, the teacher who's, uh, um, you know, obviously a just psychopathic, horrible individual who hates children and lures a child from each school where he is and kills them. And only after he kills them, he asks for ransom like he's a terrible person. But bringing all these parents like the 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 things we had, the lines we had to cross to get everybody into that same room in that old schoolhouse together, I, I felt like it. it in pieces, it was way too complex for its own good uh, and and hard to track and didn't need to be that hard to track. You know, there are, there are stories that are just as horrifying and much more simple to actually make the point. And so I just wasn't as satisfied with this one, particularly that, uh, you know, in comparison with the other two, which I thought were so strong. Well, it was funny, though, as I as I kind of got to the end of this, I couldn't help but. Uh, find the comparisons with Murder on the Orient Express, right. which largely has the same <laughs> themes of, you know, you know, which, which Hercule Poirot has to, you know, grapple with himself is like, you know, when is this violence justified? And is this, is, is this fair or should, should I turn him in or should I walk away? And I found that, um, I, I don't know. I guess in the end, I ended up finding it as compelling as uh, as Murder on the Orient Express. But at the same time, I did find I, I struggled more with um, with some of the the other story elements like her relationship with uh, with Bake, the the kidnapper. Yeah. Uh, did that even need to be there or would it have been just as fine if if she had to, you know, take the take the fall for this thing? Only because her daughter had been kidnapped. I mean, I think it may have worked just fine without them knowing each other. You see, you've just described one of those key points of just writing themselves in circles to to justify this thing. And I know that, like, I I just I feel like I know that feeling. I have a visceral sense of that feeling when I've come up with a great premise in in a, in a piece that I'm working on, and suddenly I can't figure out how to justify it. And you just you every step you take just makes it worse. <laughs> so for me, I guess I I latched. Too closely onto that kind of emotional experience in this film, maybe um, because I, I really had trouble with it. Um, well, and I think that's what happens with films like this that do challenge you: is if there are elements that you end up just they push you too far, you're going to take that challenge and and you're going to say, "Forget this! I don't want to have to deal with this challenge. It's too much." And whereas you know, in other situations like with me, where I didn't find the same the same stress with the 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 that those particular scenes you know i kind of take the challenge and I go okay i can i can ride with this and i can i can push through and enjoy it still so that's i guess one of the struggles of making films like this is that it can um it can be more divisive well i feel like i've set myself up poorly because i totally get what you're saying and i'm i'm honestly i I feel like I was feeling this way already before I was, you know, truly angered by the film. I was already thinking to myself, this is nonsense. Uh, I don't believe these connections. Uh, these are these are writing holes before I got mad. And and so, like, there's sort of the pre-snuff and post-snuff experience of the film. I get being challenged. I don't think ultimately, yeah, it was kind of confusing and I didn't enjoy that experience as much as I have in other films, but I just don't, I don't feel like I was 
um, like, uh, you know, I was I was not accepting the the mantle that this film presented me that I just was not the honored recipient of its of its grandiosity. I just feel like it wasn't as good a movie as the other two. And I feel like that's an important note. I can I can see that. I it's it's interesting. I think that he's created a an interesting set of films where you're going to have people who could look at any of the these three films and for reasons that I think could potentially make sense could say any of them are the best of the trilogy. I think it's an interesting when you, when you're working at such a, you know, kind of a creative artistic storytelling level, I think that's a pretty unique uh, you know, gift that we've been given here. What do you think about the role of religion in the film? Can you tell me where where that lands for you? Because, you know, we open with a, a very religious sort of presentation, right? The the reception of her after her transformation in prison and in her faith. Uh, and she turns it on its ear. And so throughout, then we have this these sort of pieces of religion dusted through in the in the shape of this, uh, you know, now a religious essentially traitor to her. Um, what do you think he's saying with with all the religiosity in here? I don't know what he's saying. I'm not sure if there's really anything in particular he's saying. I know that, you know, there's the kind of the the gag of, you know, why are you leaving? Because I've switched to Buddhism sort of thing. And I know there are two big religions in Korea. Um, other than that, I, have to say, I, I did love that sequence, too, where she actually calls the other guy and says, why did you tell him? Yeah. Why did you tell him where I was in front of him? I thought that was a great bit of Chan Wook like humor. I thought that was fantastic. But, you know, I I don't know if I really could read anything about religion into it. The only thing that I, that really stood out to me as kind of uniquely religious in some way is, you know, there was the whole idea at the beginning of, of, um, eating the white tofu because it it would help purify yours your your way of committing to being more pure and, and clearing the sin of your from your life something like that I can't remember exactly what it was um, and then we get the same thing at the end when she brings the white cake uh, and and has her daughter eat it and then she just can't and even what I found so interesting is that the daughter and um, and uh, Gunshik, who is kind of following her and singing along in, in some kind of weird, yeah. weird way, um, they both, as it's snowing, they both kind of raise their heads up and open their mouths and like stick their tongues out. Um, and, and and the daughter is just, you know, they're talking about, you know, the the white and 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 be white, live white, and all that sort of stuff. And here they are. It's almost like they're taking communion. And the two of them so willingly open their mouths and like let the snowflakes kind of melt on their tongues and stuff. And you get uh, Gumja kind of lifting her head up and looking straight up, and but she just can't. And and she you're staring at her for a long time, and she just cannot open her mouth. And it's like she 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 just cannot accept the possibility of forgiveness almost. And she's so broken of a person. Um, and I found that a really interesting thing and potentially a reflection on kind of uh, religion and, 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 you know, personal atonement versus, you know, the church finding atonement. Cause then she just like, you know, dives into the cake. Like she just stuffs her face into the cake, almost as like she's doing everything she can at this point to find ways to kind of cross into purity, even though she may never. Um, it was a really interesting 
uh, I don't know if it was an overt statement on religion, but it certainly had a very kind of spiritual element to it that I really connected with. I, I had to go back to um, some statistics that we'd run in an earlier show when we talked about, um, you know, I think it was Bong Joon-ho. Uh, we were talking about religion in Korea. And, and you know, as a reminder, South Korea is the fifth largest population of atheists in the world and a very large, by comparison, population of people with who say they have zero religious affiliation, you know, 50, 60 percent. Um, and in the age group that would, I think, largely be attracted to this movie, we're looking at over 60 percent um, of, of people who say they just have no religious affiliation at all. And so whether that makes them spiritual people or, or not, you know, we don't know. But uh, it does have a very large population of people who are are who, who don't follow organized religion. Uh, and I think that's I, that that for some reason is more interesting to me with this movie, like the the statement that they make around religious symbols and around, um, you know, around the colors. And as you say, that moment of communion at the end, what does what does that mean? It's ultimately um, sort of a futile experience. And the fact that they make the the, you know, key religious figures, um, you know, not, uh, uh, you know, figures of of honor in this movie, I think is a is an interesting one. Uh, so it it that left me a lot more to think about than than some of the other angles we've talked about so far. Well, it definitely was an element that I don't feel had been addressed in any way yeah. in either of the other films. Um, likewise, law enforcement. Here we have because uh, neither of the previous. Films, oh, so I guess you have the detectives. Point. You have the detective uh, kind of helping in the in the first story as he kind of acknowledges that uh, it's actually interesting in both the first and third films, you do have kind of the detective helping the, the person who is, you know, kind of seeking vengeance in the, in the case of the first film, it's the father after his daughter's been killed. And then here it's, it's him helping Gumja. Um, and it's, it's an interesting look at uh, the legal system and how uh, in a way they, in both cases, they're kind of finding ways to sidestep the legal system and just go into this this darker way. And I actually found found that really interesting in this one, definitely because of the way that he is helping her, basically. Yes. Um, and um, but but I also you know Gumja actually gives people the way out. We can certainly go that route, you know, and and we can we can turn him over to the police right now, um, or there's this other route. And I thought that was really interesting that she's just she's actually putting that into their hands of, of going uh, one route or the other. I, I think that's a great point in terms of how they they use the theme of sort of law enforcement and 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 legal uh, remedies in this movie compared to the other movies. Uh, same thing with like good and bad kidnappings. There's another theme that we do have uh, played <laughs> over and over again. Uh, what's I, I, what is that all about? It made me wonder, because uh, this is, you know, we had this in the first film, too. Was this something going on in Korea? Were there so many kidnappings happening at, at some point that the people started talking about these good versus bad kidnappings? You know, is this what people talk about in Mexico, about the different kidnappings? Oh, the yeah. good ones are the ones where you pay and you get your kid back. It's like, yeah, this is just a, you know, a horrifying side of the world that I don't want to have to think about. Right. Like such a big deal that we have to make three movies in which kidnapping is a central feature. Right. 
Uh, it's uh, it a big deal. Um, and you think that uh, they think all Australians are drunks. You know, <laughs> I don't know what was going on in that scene. <laughs> I, I could not for the life of me figure out why all of a sudden everything turned to this crazy, weird party scene that I, I just I could not figure out what the heck was happening. That to me was just a really strange turn. Um, these, you know, adoptive parents just, you know, she comes in and asks, uh, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is my daughter, you, you know, and and all of a sudden they're all drunk and laughing about it. And they're like, yeah, take her with you. I, you know, I mean, at knife point, granted, but still. She was it holding was, herself was, at knife point. Yeah, well, right. The girl, the daughter is holding herself at, at knife point. Once again, we have that balance of humor and and you know, yeah, really horrible things. I I actually found the entire trip to Australia a diversion or a distraction to the main narrative that I thought that was one of the areas I thought well, uh, they've written themselves into a hole and this is how they're going to get out of it. I just uh, I I didn't I just didn't connect with with that piece. Although those elements of humor were were sort of worth the trip. Uh, I, I think they made it more complex than probably they needed to be to introduce that angle. And it was a strange little piece. Uh, again, going looking at at potential story element issues, and this is me, you know, liking the film, still finding a uh, you know potential pr- problem here. So this is a, a a kidnapper who he kidnaps uh, Gumja's daughter and says, you know, confess to the crime of killing this boy or i'm going to kill your daughter mm-hmm. um she confesses to the crime and goes to jail knowing that this guy has a uh you know uh, a history of killing the children uh anyway i i'm surprised that one he doesn't kill the daughter and two how is he the one who's you know able to be the to put this child into adoptive services like i it just it all says how is that happening why why is this kid uh you know why is he the one who's getting the kid adopted and i I don't know i guess it was just kind of a strange little turn of events that i was a little confused by yeah yeah but you know something else that's going on in this film that i think (laughs) we have to bring up is the fact that this is the second of the films that he's uh, had a, a whole element of this uh this uh kidney donation thing happening which <laughs> that's awesome somebody who's in that circle i find it very funny that it just, it just like keeps coming up i'm like here's another person getting a kidney donation what is up with that i was very, thinking about that very interesting i wonder at what point it, like you as the donor have a pretty sizable chit to to turn in like if you wanted to go this route I am sure your recipient, you know, needs to make you a steampunk gun or something like that's sort of a big <laughs> deal. Him. You need to See I think you gun? need to start thinking about that. <laughs> like, what can you turn in? And do you have other organs you could trade for favors? <laughs> <laughs> I think you haven't been thinking creatively enough about this. I, I've not been. I've not been. I, I or maybe I maybe I have been, but I'm just saving it up. If this movie is anything, it's inspiration for your darker, darker uh, side. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, oh, so funny, but it curi- but it really does make me curious. Like, I want to get into uh, Park Chan Wook's history and and figure out: it, did he get a donation? Did he donate? Is there somebody in his life that yeah. needed a donation and it saved their life? Like, what is the reason that this keeps popping up? Because I feel like there has to be something. It's just not something that people frequently put into their screenplays. Deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. It's the birthday cake and angels, Andy. And this, I, I should say, is uh, after. This is 
post Pete's angry at the movie. And yet I have to tell you, I quite adore this scene. This is after the um, all of the parents of the murdered children have taken out their anger on on Bake. They have uh, killed him. They have um, cleaned up their mess. They've buried his body. And uh, and um, there's a brief scene where we see uh, Jenny, the daughter, uh, with the Australian uh, people as they're all kind of still hanging out waiting for, for Goomja to come home. And then we come in on the uh, the bakery. It's the middle of the night, and Gumja has all these people here, and she's made a cake and uh, has lit the candles and brings it out to the table so they can kind of uh, celebrate this closure in their lives. And then one of the fathers starts singing "Happy Birthday," and, and you know, and uh, and I guess it goes from there. I, I think this is just a it's a lovely little scene, and and it was hard for me to kind of get into it, uh, but. You know, this is their way of celebrating the collective kind of lives of these young children that they have now just seen. Uh, and then they exact their sort of retribution on their the killer. And so but but this was the first time where we actually pivot and we turn the emotional angle to one of of love and cherishing the the lives that were lost and not just vengeance. Uh, and and that's something we don't get from the other two films, really. I mean, we don't have a moment where it slows down at the end, and and we actually get to to you know, for lack of a better word, celebrate. Uh, and I, I thought the the attention to just the you know the visual treatment of this as a soft moment in the film was really nice. You know, the high angles down, um, you know, tracking over the faces as they they're kind of looking at the the angels that are going across them uh, over them you know visualizing what's happening in the space above them i thought it was just really lovely and and patient and kind uh and and was a, a terrific balance to a lot of darkness yeah absolutely and and the way that it goes from the birthday cakes bits to we have the uh um there's the lull in conversation and that one person says you know in france when this happens, they say that there's an angel present or something like that. And that's what kind of spurs them on to kind of take out these little, um, I, I guess they're kind of the the last trinkets of their uh, kids, the kind of last little um, memory pieces that um, this uh, uh, killer had kind of been collecting. He had one for each of the kids. And now the parents have their um, these little things again, and they're clutching them as they as they look around and yes, it was, it was a beautifully done scene. It, it did have great patience. Um, it had great beauty. I loved the way that the camera work again, it's uh, uh, Chung Hoon Chung who's shooting it um, used. I can't remember what the type of lens is called. It's like a split lens or something like that where it, um, it focuses on, on very um, uh, small piece of the lens and it can kind of shift around a little bit. And they use that to great effect because you get one little tiny piece of the film in focus and it kind of shifts a little bit. So it might be the, the little trinket in, in somebody's hand and then it's just their cheek and their eye as they're looking around and everything else kind of falls into soft focus. It was just beautiful. Um, not to mention that we toward the end we have that kind of the camera um, lifts up toward the ceiling up to the chandelier and the chandelier, the lights are kind of designed like red candles, which brought me back to uh, uh, Gunja's uh, little room where she kind of had that shrine 
that she was uh, always keeping the candles lit as if she was, you know, that was her way of connecting with the little boy. Um, it was just, it was really touching. And um, in a film, like you said, that had so much darkness, this was for me like a great moment of catharsis that helped kind of get through all of that. Yeah, I, I I found it really very touching. And, and you know, we get a slow moment from some of our principal characters. Uh, you know, uh, Lee Young-ai was uh, just, I, I think she was terrific in this this entire film. I think she was just really terrific. And uh, we have a, a wonderful moment with, of her in this in this sequence of, again, of slowness. Uh, what do you think of her overall performance here? Oh, I, I thought she was brilliant. She she captured so much of the pain and the anger and all of the elements throughout the film that work so well. And in this particular scene, it was really interesting to see how she kind of um, still she was kind of a part of this scene with everybody. Kind of she was in a way kind of the the hostess, which she largely was, um, putting on this whole thing, cutting the cake and everything, passing it out, but. It was also still like, as we see throughout this whole last part, she always kind of keeps herself separate from these parents because she really wasn't, you know, she didn't have a kid who was, who was lost. She, in a way, kind of was connected to the killing of that one kid. And, um, and it really just kind of ended up um, just kind of in this place where she was not allowing herself to have that catharsis. And immediately after this scene, you have her in the bathroom finally washing off her red eyeshadow. And then the the ghost of the little boy appears behind her. And um, in what I think is just a, a brilliant moment, one, he grows up uh, very quickly into kind of who he would be if he hadn't been killed. Um, but then as she's talking to him, he puts the gag in her mouth, like not oh, letting her God. talk, almost like he still, uh, like she's not allowed to, uh, to talk still. And I don't know. I found that really, really touching. In, well, in especially way, because like, of how it was cut though. I mean, like how yeah. that move, it was so fast. It was like, right. it was, it, it was so fast. You couldn't quite track it. it. And suddenly she, you know, something moved on screen and then she had the gag in her mouth. And I, I was really, yeah, jolted by that. It was fantastic. Yeah. It makes me want to go back to, uh, you know, we've, we've mentioned this, I think, on all three of our shows about um, Park Chan-wook, but I, I think we finally need to go back and talk about Joint Security Area at some point uh, because oh, she definitely. was also in, in that. Uh, right. And so yeah. it was really nice to see her. You also want to talk yeah. about she, uh, Kim Shi-hoo. Uh, Kim Shi-hoo plays Gun-shik, who's the, the young uh, boy who uh, works at the bakery and uh, who kind of befriends her and becomes her lover. Um, I found him a very compelling actor just in there's something that was just so um, pure and innocent about him. And even when she's talking about her story and everything, the way that he kind of uh, just listens and takes it is just very um, just, he almost like had this natural forgiveness about her or, 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 or about him where he just kind of he didn't judge her. And I just I found him so. Um, so pleasant in just the way that he handled everything. And largely, he's not in the scene. He only comes in at the very end, and that's kind of the moment that breaks the spell and spurs all these uh, these people to notice that it's snowing outside, and then they all kind of scurry away and head off uh, back to their own lives. Um, 
but yeah, just the fact that he's in the scene though, I just, I wanted to make sure we talked about him because I, I found him to be, um, a really surprising element that I wasn't really thinking was going to turn into anything. But by the time we get to the end and he's kind of singing to her and then he's out there catching snowflakes on his tongue, um, I was really kind of under his spell. And I, I don't know, I just, I think that just the fact that he was in her life, um, made me feel like, you know, she may not feel that she uh, can be forgiven. She may not be getting forgiven at this particular moment, but the fact that he's in her life, I feel like, I feel like it's coming. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's great. That That's a, a nice way to look at it. Um, and you know, I should also add that, uh, grown up Juan Mo was, uh, uh, played by briefly by Yuji Tai, who we talked about, um, last week and he shows up, he grows up, he puts a thing and I keep thinking to myself, don't, I, where's the button to keep your heart pumping? <laughs> don't push the button. <laughs> Uh, uh, it was, it, that was, that was a fun, uh, tiny, tiny crossover to that end. I mean, uh, you know, Park Chan-wook asked a lot of people in, um, in these other films to kind of, uh, come back and be in, uh, other movies in little, in little bit parts and stuff. And, and, uh, I'll just kind of run through the list here cause it's not that many people, um, uh, oh, Quang Rock. Uh, he is actually the only actor who made an appearance in all three films. He plays um, uh, one of the fathers at the very end in this one. Um, yeah. In uh, Old Boy, he is the suicidal man that we start the film with when uh, when Daisu is kind of holding him by his tie over the side of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, he was one of the anarchists at the end um, who uh, come to kill to kill him um next up we have um uh song kang ho he was um as uh, park dong jin in sympathy for mr vengeance and he was the hired assassin number one in lady vengeance <laughs> right uh and we and then of course we have uh, shin ha kyun as uh, ryu in sympathy for mr vengeance he was the other hired assassin here uh, so those two reunite uh for, <laughs> awesome. for the, that which is great uh choi min sik uh, he he was uh, Mr. Bake, and we already mentioned that he was Daisu and Old Boy. Uh, Yuji Tae was Lee Woo Jin, as you just said, um, uh, and then the older Wan Mo here. Uh, Kang Hye Jun as uh, Mido in Old Boy. If you look very quickly, she is the TV announcer in in uh, at the very beginning of this. Film. Right, right, um, right. Uh, Odesu is uh, Park uh, Choi Wong, Wong in Old Boy, and then Mr. Chang here in Lady Vengeance, and Kim byung Ok as Mr. Han in Old Boy was the preacher here in Lady Vengeance. That was so. probably the most surprising because uh, Kim byung Ok in, in Old Boy was that crazy blonde guy who can throw other people over his head into windows. Uh, <laughs> and he was not that character here, <laughs> very much not. It was the the one that, that I, I, I think the greatest uh, divergence in parts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very much so. Very much Very so. Much. Uh, the uh, just a quick comment again. Uh, Lee Unju did the the makeup, uh, principal makeup on this thing, and and the makeup has apparently inspired a look or like a makeup meme. If you do the Lady Vengeance uh, search on YouTube, you come up with so many how tos, how to do just the right amount of makeup of the red uh, eyeshadow to make it look like she has in this movie and not like a mask apparently it's quite difficult to do just right so 
uh, you know, hats off to the makeup team for starting a thing. Hey, anytime they can do that, that's yeah. uh, that's that is that is a uh, kudos to them. I tip my hat. And I would say the production design was also, as I've already mentioned, stellar uh, little elements like how they were able to use her apartment with the crazy, you know, stripy flames on the walls that were yeah. so fascinating to look at and just tickled the camera. I thought it was just wonderful. Those those little bits of attention to detail, I think, were, were quite nice. And you've already mentioned the gun as a prop was just fantastic. Well, and what was so great about the gun is paired with uh, going back to the makeup team. The brilliant tattoo that the gun maker has on his arm and <laughs> you kind right. of go up his arm and it's like an arm with a gun um, inside an arm with a gun inside an arm with a gun inside an arm with a gun leading to his hand holding the gun like that yeah. was the coolest tattoo ever. If I ever wanted to hold a gun and look cool, you'd have to have that tattoo. tattoo yeah. And and such a, you know, it's just an, an expert use of camera in that shot. That long tracking shot close up of his arm was so great. Right. Beautiful reveal. What do you think of the music of this thing? I really liked it. It was uh, a really, um, it felt very um, classical. Uh, sometimes I was thinking that we were using, actually, we I, were using I, looked, I think that they were yeah. using sometimes, or they were pulling themes. I think it was Vivaldi. They found some themes and they incorporated it into some of the the, the score that I found really, um, I don't know. I, I guess it just ended up giving it kind of this this big kind of classical feel and in this style that Park Chan-wook has in all of these films everything feels so operatic the way everything happens the way that the performances are um, it all makes it so much bigger and when you have a score that has that very kind of classical feel to it it just lends to that operatic uh, feel so I uh, yeah I really liked it I, I really liked it too and it was such a de departure from the last film that I, I thought it was a, a really nice touch and it it sets the tone for something new right I mean it's something as soon as you watch these, especially watching these films back to back that you are seeing something different here and I, I really appreciated that I thought it was wonderful yeah. Uh, okay, so we already mentioned this, the the version. We were talking about the version of the film. Which version of the film uh, did you see, and why should I care about that question? Well, I don't think we we talked specifically. I think we were only mentioning the color palette and the you know, the black and white and red and stuff. But I, I think what's so interesting is that Park Chan-wook did kind of make two versions of this film. One is the one that I watched and you watched. The other is this version that is ca called the fade to black version where... Uh, or fade to black and white, I think, yeah. um, where over the course of the film, uh, the colors slowly begin to fade out until by the time you get to the end, it's just a complete black and white version of the film, which I guess is now at least um, uh, Park's preferred version. Whereas at the time of release, he was really seemed to, to waffle quite a bit and they ended up releasing both versions in Korea. Um I, I think both versions are available on DVD there. Um, they might have released this version here in the U.S., but um, it wasn't on the disc that I saw. So yeah. um, I would be really curious to watch it because it sounds like a really fascinating way to kind of uh, to revision this story, playing with color to kind of continue enhancing the the theme. What's so interesting about it is it's it's something that he was already you could tell he was already doing in the film, right? I mean, when the the first shot to the oh, yeah. last you know few moments of the film. 
first shot is full of color, vibrant, vibrant color, right? It's on the walls of these pri- the prison. We're on the we're we're see just a lot of color. She comes out. She's wearing color. She wears this blue dr- uh, jacket throughout much of the first part of the film. By the end, she's wearing everyone else is dressed like Santa. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> bright colors, right? I mean, it's all bright colors, and and by the end of the film, it is you know stark absence of bright color. It's not not black and white, but she's wearing all black and, uh, you know, it makes the red of her eyes certainly stand out. But uh, he's he's already sort of manufactured that transition just through kind of production design. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see it, uh, as you said, with the that sort of removed technically too. I think that's uh, really interesting. Well, since you're never going to watch it again, when I do, yeah, I please will tell let me. You know what I let, let me know. I, and maybe <laughs> you could just recut it for me. Take out that sequence. I could watch it again. And there you go. Uh, how to do an award season? It was received fairly well. It wasn't um, a huge uh, award hit like uh, like the previous one, but it did well enough for itself. Twelve wins, twelve other nominations. Um, over in Korea. Um, it did get, uh, at the grand bell awards, uh, South Korea. It's, it's funny. I don't understand Korea and the number of award, uh, different awards that they have, but, but maybe it's like the Academy Awards, the golden globes, uh, you know, the tellies, I don't know, but the grand bell awards, it did get four nominations, uh, best film, which lost to the King and the clown best actress. Uh, uh, she lost to, uh, John Doyon in You Are My Sunshine. Best new actor, Kim Shi Hu, uh, who we just talked about, he was uh, nominated but lost to uh, uh, Lee Jun Gi in The King of the, in the Clown. And best director, uh, Park, lost to Lee Jun Ik for The King of the Clown, which I guess was a big film that year. Um, it sounds like an interesting one, certainly. Um, over at the Korean Film Awards, it had five other nominations, but that was all it mostly technical. Again, best actress, best cinematography, best editing, best art direction, and best music. So, um, you know, popular enough. And it seemed that the the awards that it did win do seem to focus on uh, Lee Young A as the actress or Park Chan Wook as the director. Dubious uh, rumors of remakes, Andy. Uh, dubious indeed. Yeah, it's uh, it sounds like it. Uh, you know, at least as uh, as of five years ago, uh, Charlize Theron was looking at uh, jumping in to do a, a Lady Vengeance remake, huh? Yeah, uh, to be written by William Monaghan, who was uh, pen behind uh, The Departed. And last we can find, as of you know, around November, December, twenty twelve, uh, Monaghan said, "This is very American, very unexpected." Park Chan-wook is a genius. This is the Everest of adaptations, and I've got blood in my teeth to do it. And uh, it uh, clearly never happened. She went on to Atomic Blonde, and I don't know, maybe that was enough of her uh, uh, her foray into uh, Lady Vengeancing. That's, yeah. It, I mean, I certainly think that uh, between that and uh, what she uh, was doing in Fury Road, yep. it's definitely... Um, it all makes sense. You know, it, it fits in the theme and whether the the idea of a Lady Vengeance remake slowly turned into Atomic Blonde, um, uh, perhaps the, uh, you know, the, the failure of Spike Lee's old boy kind of pushed it that direction rather than just a straight up um, Lady Vengeance remake. Um, I don't know, but I do find it very interesting. Do you want to um, do you want to see a remake of this movie? Is this one you'd like to see, uh, you know, with very American and very unexpected? 
I think remakes can be interesting. I'm not one who ever is going to just like say, you know, they just should not bother. Um, I think they, they can do it if they are going about it for the right reasons and they're trying to find something new and unique to do with it. Um, I think that this could be told in a way that that might make for a really interesting, really compelling story because I think that there is a really good question like, uh, you know, what what Park said that you brought up right at the beginning is just like, you know, uh, when is there a time where this violence becomes justified? And um, seeing how that played out, I think, could make for a really compelling story and perhaps uh, done in a way where the story might have been a little cleaner and might not not have required quite so much work, perhaps in a way that wasn't quite so offensive uh, to some people who are watching it. Um, it could be done. And um, I, I think it could be interesting. If it goes down the uh, the old boy remake route, though, I don't know how interested I'd be. All right. Well, how to do with the box? Ten Wook's final tale of revenge kicked off with a budget of $4.5 million, or $5.5 million in today's dollars. The movie was released on July 29, 2005 in South Korea, where it was a huge hit, becoming the seventh highest grossing film that year. After playing in the festival circuit, it began its global release in October of the same year, and eventually opened here in the U.S. in a limited release on April 28, 2006, where it opened opposite Aquila and the Bee, United 93, RV, and Stick It. Here in the States, it went on to make 212000 and everywhere else in the world, it grossed $23.6 million. That gives it an adjusted gross in today's dollars of $29.3 million, an adjusted profit per finished minute of 212000 weirdly about what it made here in the U.S. All told, Chan Wook's trilogy mostly did well for itself and pushed him into greater international recognition. I think there's a lot to appreciate about Park Chan Wook's work, and I, I hope that I come off uh, our discussion of these three films as a fan. I'm clearly a fan of his work. Uh, to me, this was a, a misstep. I recognize that this is, uh, the, you know, it's a, it's a deeply personal thing. And uh, but but, uh, you know, it, it hurts to not truly just fall in love with the film as I walk out of it, um, because there's there's truly so much to appreciate uh, in this movie. Yeah, I think largely it's just it's one big scene that kind of was a giant misstep for you that that pushed it over the edge. Otherwise, it might have been, you know, still an enjoyable film, but maybe not your favorite of the trilogy. Yeah, right. Well, and, it, and it, yeah, like you said, not my favorite of the trilogy for some reasons that are story and narrative delivered and certainly not architecturally. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, a film with good bones. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's flick chart it, Andy. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com. Uh, slash the next reel, you'll see our list of films, and uh, uh, you can add this one to it. Just swipe over in your show notes and tap on Flick Chart. It'll take you right to Lady Vengeance, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right, first up, we have Lady Vengeance or Star Trek Beyond. That'll be Star Trek Beyond. I, this is spo- Star Trek. Spoiler alert. Uh, this is a tough one for me to rank. I don't think it has to be a spoiler alert. I think you've been pretty <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. From the first minute of the show. <laughs> uh, that's like Agatha Christie. This is the person who did it. <laughs> All right. Lady Vengeance or the host. Oh, the host. I'm going to say Lady Vengeance. Totally the host. Totally Lady Vengeance. All right. Here we go. All right. One, one two, two, three. three rock. Paper. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> Lady Vengeance or Princess Mononoke. Definitely Mononoke. Oh, Mononoke. Yeah. Yeah. 
Lady Vengeance or Detroit? Lady Vengeance. Oh, let me. me think. Let me think. Um, <laughs> yeah, Detroit with a bullet. <laughs> All right. But no gun. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, that was such a great joke. <laughs> it took me a second, but man, let me take a knee for that. <laughs> Does that mean that you're giving it to me? Oh, uh, no, no, no. Oh, of course not. <laughs> no, no, no. Here we go. All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. Oh, God. All Sorry. right. All right. Lady Vengeance or Quarantine? Quarantine. Ooh, I'm going to go Quarantine yeah. here. Lady Vengeance or Thief? Early Michael Mann. Thief. I'll take some James Caan over this thing. You know, I would say Lady Vengeance, but I'm going to give you Thief. That's generous. You clearly I don't too. need to. I'm not going to be generous. <laughs> no, I know you're not. But I, I do enjoy both of these films. Okay. And I, uh, in this case, I'm just going to give you Thief because I, I do find that quite uh, an interesting film to watch. Outstanding. Lady Vengeance or Die Hard with a Vengeance? Oh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, I didn't even think about Die Hard with a Vengeance as part of the Vengeance trilogy. It really is more, it has a better place than Old Boy. Let's be clear. <laughs> the title works so much better. Totally. <laughs> it should have at least been Old Boy with a Vengeance. Come on. Old Boy with a Vengeance. Low hanging fruit. Right. I guess I'm going to go with Die Hard. Hmm. I'm a little torn on this one, hmm. but uh, yeah, I know. Okay. Lady Vengeance or The Thin Man? The Thin Man. Uh, Lady Vengeance. Amazing how much I love all these movies. I know, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you were hoping you'd get down to like the women. And yeah, no, that would make it. That would sure make it easy. Rush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, you ready? Uh huh. One, One, two, two three. three. Paper. Scissors. Goodness, Andy. <laughs> Good night, nurse. All right. Well, that leaves Lady Vengeance at two thirty-seven. On our flick chart, I know it's much higher than you would like, but uh, but it still is at a low thirty two percent. So I, I, you know, it's it's a fair spot on the chart. All right. Well, according to you, how did this end up on on your <laughs> personal flick chart? It ended up at nine eighty eight out of thirty nine thirty five. So that's about a seventy five percent, which you know I think is I think that's uh, I think that's a fair spot for it. Um, it's one of those movies that upon, uh, you know, further watching it, I don't know if it would go up or down. It's, this is kind of an interesting little film where I, I feel like I liked it, uh, quite a bit, but I also felt like I had issues with it. So, okay. Right. Well, I, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm re-ranking it right now, <laughs> right now. Oh, um, <laughs> because I feel like I just want to make sure that the answer that I give you is is an accurate one after our conversation, because I clearly there are things that I did like about this movie. And yet the more I get through <laughs> ranking, it came out exactly the same place, Andy. So yours was what did you say? 988? 988. 988. Yeah. So we're actually pretty close. Mine was 1017. And uh, of course, it was out of 1017. I <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. This is now the very bottom of my film. Maybe that's predictable. Uh, it is. It's a very strange place that I find myself with this movie, having so many things that I actually like about the presentation of the film, and having it having it be a film I'm just not going to watch again. And so when you pair it up, I'm I'm gonna. I feel like I almost shouldn't say this for the record. I'm going to watch Borat before I watch this movie again. 
uh, that's where we are. I, I may even, Andy, I may watch Black Hat before I watch this movie again. Andy, I'm going to say this. I may watch Tony Monero before I watch this movie again. I, that is I may watch Tony Monero poop on a suit twice before I watch this movie again. That's how serious I am. And it's, it's, so here's a question for you. Um, how far, how much farther do you think it fell down on your chart because of the, the, uh, the uh, video? Sequence? Yeah, right. So that, that gets to our uh, five-star cutoff, right? It was already not a five-star film. I think uh, as a result of some of the, uh, of that sequence that we talked about, uh, you know, in the, the, when all of those things started happening together, uh, at once and right. I just sort of lost the thread. I was like, this is not a five-star movie that I'm falling in love with, but it was easily a four-star movie. And then it was a one-star movie. And, but I'm, I, after our conversation, I'm going to, I'm going to settle in at, at a, you know, two stars. Uh, I may even go two and a half, but I'm not going to give it a like. So, okay. So you're going to say two and a half. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's higher than I thought considering it's last place on your flick chart. Right? That's what I mean. Like, what a weird place to to have a yeah. film that I actually, well, there's so much I actually do appreciate about it, and I, it's still at the bottom of my list. Well, but it, it also, I, I think sometimes there are films that you can certainly appreciate and go, you know, I appreciate that there's stuff in here that's that's good. I, I think there's a lot of craft to it. I will never, ever in my life watch it again. Yeah. And I certainly have some films like that um, on my chart. Give me, that just are, give me right one. Down give, toward the bottom. give me one. So I'm not uh, in the realm of sense. In the realm of the sense. Oh, yeah. No, totally. That's right there. <laughs> that was way, way down there. Okay, good. Really yeah, didn't care for that, that at all. Yes. Outstanding. Yeah. Uh, but this one, I give, you know, and I was torn. And I actually feel like because of our conversation, I dropped a little bit in my ranking. I'm sure you'll appreciate <laughs> I was at a four star and a like when I went into this, but as we talked about it and more of the problems started kind of sticking a little bit in my head, uh, I'm at a three and a half, and, but I three and a half and a like. So I think that puts us at overall a three star, a three and a like. So that's well, where it sits. All right. Fine. I'm actually, I'm glad that our conversation has metered your impression of the film. Uh, if, if not my, uh, lack of enthusiasm for that particular sequence. Um, I, I, I think that I just, oh man, I'm looking at the page on letterbox.com right now. And just one more shout out for camera. The way they use her eyes in this movie is just awesome. It's just yeah. so, so good. Um, what, uh, so that finished, we're done. We're done with vengeance. We can move on to something, hopefully a little bit more hopeful. What are we going to do next? It is a uh, a big tonal shift. We are jumping um, jumping back in time a little bit. We're going to be looking at the the film career of good old James Dean. Um, it should be a uh, a really fun series to talk about. Um, he really only starred in three feature films. He did a lot of TV work and um, very small parts in some other films, but really. The bulk of his career um, before his untimely death was the three films that he was uh, that he helmed, and that is, we're kicking it off with East of Eden from 1955, uh, same year. Then we'll do Rebel Without a Cause, and we're going to end with Giant from 1956. Have you uh, have you seen them all? I've I've seen two of the three. I've not seen East of Eden, the first one. I've oh, really? Oh, I I am exactly opposite. I've seen East of Eden and Rebel, but I have not seen Giant. So I'm I think this is going to be a really fun. Uh, a, a fun series. I'm a little worried now, given our 
experience with the third film in the Vengeance trilogy about the third film in our James Dean trilogy. What could he possibly do in Giant that will ruin my experience? I just don't know. Well, I will tell you, Giant takes place over a longer period of time. And the age makeup, uh, you, you just have to get past the, <laughs> the, the credibility. <laughs> a little bit of the Outstanding. Okay, good. I feel like I have the thing that I'm going to hate, and now I can move on. There you Look go. Look at that. <laughs> well done, Andy. Uh, this has been, a, as always, even though it's a movie I don't like, it's been a great conversation. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs the Instagram program, and Ben Steerick, who helps out over there. And Ben Lott, who runs the Blot Spot and all things on Twitter. Thank you to everybody uh, who is a part of the Next Real team. The Next Real theme, Ragtime Instrumental, you can find over on the SoundCloud page of the great Eli Catlin, who does all sorts of other great music stuff. You should check out his work there, Eli Catlin. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And this week, because I was the dissenting uh, vote, uh, I went with a five star, and I assume you went with a one star? You know, I was looking at the one stars, and I, I couldn't find anything that really, you know, I was super satisfied with, so I went with a two star. Oh, okay. All right. Well, would, yeah. would you like to go to, to climb the ladder or descend the ladder today? I feel like we should end on, well, I don't know. Should we end on a high note, or should we end on a low note? I, <laughs> you know what? I, I think you should go first today. All right. Well, my two star uh, by Martin says more like two wrongs don't make a right. It is a so-so movie. You pay for what you get. Girl forced into admitting a murder because murderer has girl's daughter. Goes to prison. Makes friends by helping those that cannot or will not fend for themselves. Gets out to help old prison mates who help her. Captures the real murderer to leave his fate up to the parents whose children he killed. In between, locates daughter brings her back cliff note version i can't get over reading this you pay for what you get it's like you get what you pay for like i've yeah. never heard someone say <laughs> it backward like good that point. I've never you pay for what that. you get well, that that sounded like <laughs> almost too natural it was the uncanny valley of this, idioms this is this is why uh it felt like there should be a punchline and there wasn't one maybe right. because the punchline's at the beginning you pay for, what, pay you for what you get <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly the definition of commerce. <laughs> I felt like I was looking for a punchline, and then there wasn't one. No, it's, <laughs> that it's, it's the whole that's thing. because it's the cliff note version. You don't get a punchline in the cliff note. Version. Oh, okay, no, good. Well, maybe this one will help. Uh, uh, GX Gabriel on January nineteenth says uh, a full throated five star review. I love this movie. Spoiler alert: It's about revenge. In the sense of old boy, this movie is right up there in the Korean genre scene. It is well worth reading in English subtitles. Newsflash, most of the world ends up seeing American movies in subtitles. I am sure you would appreciate the effort on your part to go out of your way to enjoy something new or something not so new like vengeance. So what do you think of that, right? Really something. Pretty good. Really, Pretty really good. something. <laughs> Newsflash. Thanks, Amazon. 
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>